0: I have been speaking to you for several weeks on the doctrines of grace, or that which is commonly known as the five points of Calvinism. There are two basic approaches to the Word of God, that wherein the emphasis is placed upon the divine power of God Almighty in the matter of salvation wherein God is given all the honor and the glory and that wherein emphasis is placed upon the at least partial power of man, wherein he cooperates with God and so receives a part of the glory of salvation unto himself. We believe that system called Calvinism is more in keeping with the right interpretation of the word of God in that the Lord Jesus Christ, receives the honor, the power, the glory, and the dominion. And man is placed in his rightful position before that God as a guilty sinner, unworthy of the favor of God, who is totally and absolutely dependent upon God in the matter of salvation. I have given to you the word TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, as a crutch to aid you in your memory of these five major doctrinal points. and We have noted that the word T stands for total depravity, which from the biblical perspective means that man, having fallen in Adam in the Garden of Eden, cannot render any good toward God, cannot provide any righteousness with which God is satisfied. And so is thoroughly and totally corrupted by sin throughout all the faculties of his being, his mind, his will, his affections, his thoughts and imaginations, and his actions. This does not by any means mean that man is as bad as he can be, but it does mean that man is throughout contaminated with sin. In contrast to this, the Arminian perspective, which places an emphasis upon man and his power, denies the total sinfulness of man, denies that man is born in sin, that man has a corrupted nature, but rather that man is in some state of neutrality until he himself is put to the test and so is able of himself to cooperate with God and deliver himself from sin. We noted that the U stands for unconditional election, which means that if men are as sinful as the Bible says he is, they are, then God must take the initiative in salvation. Therefore the Lord Jesus Christ declared, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So unconditional election. Means that God, without any consideration of anything within the sinner, set His everlasting love upon a people, chose them from among mankind to be the recipients of His saving grace. In contrast to this, the Arminian says, hold on there. We believe in election, for the Bible teaches election, but we believe that it's conditional. We believe that it may be something like this, that God voted for you, the devil voted against you, you cast the deciding vote. Or that which conditioned your election was that God saw you would believe, that you would repent, that you would persevere in your faith, that you would be better than your neighbor, and so upon those grounds he chose you to salvation. Then we noted Limited atonement. Limited atonement. In other words, a particular redemption, which simply means that the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein He came into the world as our substitute and surety, extended no far farther than the divine purpose of God in election that if Jesus Christ had paid the sin debt for all men without exception, then by an act of justice all men without exception must have been saved. On the other hand, if God has chosen a people, then the Lord Jesus Christ, having paid the sin debt on the behalf of those people, has not spilled his blood as wasted in an Esau or a Judas Iscariot, but has shed his blood for the actual salvation of those given to him of his Father. The I stands for irresistible grace, and that we come to in our message for today. And the P stands for the perseverance of the saints, which we will consider next Lord's Day the Lord willing. Now, irresistible grace may be illustrated in this way, and we shall note more carefully what this actually means. Here are two persons who come into a congregation and sit down together and share in common the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, these two persons who sit together have come from the same environmental background and also are genetically influenced by the same parents in that they are twins. Here they sit together in the same church at the same time from a similar environmental and genetical background listening to the same sermon as it is being delivered by the preacher who stands before them. As the discourse comes to an end, one of these persons hears that sermon. He says, you know, what that man says makes sense. I believe that I am a sinner. I believe that I am a lost man. I believe that there is an eternity to be gained and an eternal condemnation to be shunned. I believe that salvation is only in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It seemed as if that preacher had singled me out from all the other people present and had addressed himself directly to me. And you know, I believe that God has worked a desire in my heart to be saved. Now the other person sitting with him, the twin brother, says, My, I don't see how you can come to those conclusions. I did not understand a word he said. What he spoke was utterly foolish to me. It was boring to the ultimate degree. I got nothing out of it. How can you become so interested and concerned over those words that he spoke? How can you take seriously what he said about man's sinful condition? And so immediately there is an enmity that arises between the two persons, one hearing something the other didn't, one understanding something that was foolishness to the other, one going away with an experience that was alien and foreign to the other. And yet they were brothers, not only brothers but twins. What is it that made the difference? We cannot say that it was family background. We cannot say that it was circumstantial. We cannot say that one was more genetically prepared toward a religious motivation than the other. Influences must be ruled out. We cannot even say that it was through the power and moral suasion of the minister who was able to manipulate words and move the hearts of men. Not at all. These things cannot have entered in what made the difference, or rather, who made the difference, and we must come to the conclusion that the difference was made by the irresistible grace of God and the effectual operation of the Holy Spirit wherein the Spirit of God gave life to one, gave an hearing ear to one, gave seeing eyes to one, gave faith and repentance to one, and passed the other by. And so it goes all the way back to God's purpose in election, that the purpose of salvation might stand, not in the worthiness of man, but in God who chooses and calls and has mercy, upon whom he will have mercy. So then that it might not be of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, as the Apostle Paul declared in the book of Romans and chapter 9. Now, where can we find a biblical example that could even be similar to what I've just said? We can find it in Jacob and Esau. Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, and Esau was the better of the two as judged by worldly standards. Therefore, it was irresistible grace as the sole cause for these different reactions on the part of of these men. Now let's note in particular what this irresistible grace of God is, this irresistible grace that issues itself in an effectual call wherein a sinner hears the gospel, cannot refuse the gospel, but must respond in faith by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as very God of very God the second person of the triune Godhead, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who in the fullness of the time came into the world, took into union with his divine person a human nature, stood in the room and place of his people, obeyed the law on their behalf, went to the cross of Calvary, died under the curse of the law in their stead, and on the third day was raised again. Well, to give to you, first of all, a definition of irresistible grace, I wish to read from the Canons of Dort. You will remember the Canons of Dort were drawn up by the Church Fathers in Holland in 1618 in order to set forth uh, the general principles of our faith in the matter of God's grace in salvation and became known in after years in theological systems as the five points of Calvinism. For it is not in the writings of Calvin, in his Institutes, that these points are systematized, though they are expounded, but in the canons of Dort. And in reaction to these canons, Jacob Arminius drew up his five points of Arminianism in reaction to the teachings of of the doctrines of grace. Now in sections 3 and 4, Articles 10 through 14, the Canons of Dort have these words to say. And I give them to you so that you might see that what I have to say is not by any means a modern invention, it is not by any means speculation and present-day philosophy, but is the platform upon which the Reformed churches were built. Article 10 says, But that others who are called by the gospel, obey the call, and are converted, is not to be ascribed to the proper exercise of free will, whereby one distinguishes himself above others, equally furnished with grace sufficient for faith, and conversions, as the proud heresy of Pelagius maintains. But it must be wholly ascribed to God, who, as he has chosen his own from eternity in Christ, so he confers upon them faith and repentance, rescues them from the power of darkness, and translates them into the kingdom of his dear Son that they may show forth the praises of him who hath called them out of darkness into his marvelous light and may glory not in themselves but in the Lord according to the testimony of the apostles in various places. But when God accomplishes his good pleasure in the elect or works in them true conversion— He not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them, ruling out this hyper-Calvinism that the gospel is not a means in man's regeneration, and powerfully illuminates their minds by his Holy Spirit, that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy of the same regenerating Spirit, pervades the inmost recesses of the man, he opens the closed and softens the hardened heart, and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he quickens. From being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. And this is the regeneration so highly celebrated in Scripture, and denominated a new creation, a resurrection from the dead, a making alive, which God works in us without our aid. But this is in no wise effected merely by the external preaching of the gospel, by moral suasion, or such a mode of operation that after God has performed his part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not, to be converted or to continue unconverted. But it is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful and at the same time most delightful, astonishing, mysterious, and ineffable, not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead, as the Scripture inspired by the author of this work declares. So that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated, and do actually believe. Whereupon the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. The manner of this operation cannot be fully comprehended by believers in this life, notwithstanding which they rest satisfied with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of God they are enabled to believe with the heart and love their Savior. Faith is therefore to be considered as the gift of God not on account of its being offered by God to man, to be accepted or rejected at his pleasure, but because it is in reality conferred, breathed, and infused into him, or even because God bestows the power or ability to believe, and then expects that man should by the exercise of his own free will consent to the terms of salvation, and actually believe in Christ. But because he who works in man both to will and to do, and indeed all things in all, produces both the will to believe and the act of believing also. And so the fathers who drew up the canons of Dort. And here we have, I believe, the most concise and clearest statement of the effectual work of God in irresistible grace that can be found. Now let us break down the terms and look at them in more detail. First of all, considering the word grace. Throughout the New Testament, the word grace is the translation of the Greek word charis, and it means God's undeserved and unmerited favor to ill-deserving sinners. Not just undeserved favor to men, but it is undeserved favor to those who have no claim upon that favor, who are themselves, rather than being in any wise deserving, yea, who, rather than being neutral in the matter, are non-deserving, are ill-deserved, Yea, rather, are deserving of the opposite, which is the disfavor of God, the displeasure of God, the wrath of God in his judgment upon them because of their sins. This is extremely important, for if we say that grace is simply God's undeserved favor, it may leave man in somewhat of a halfway house of neutrality. But man is not neutral in anything. Anything that man thinks, anything that man says, anything that man does, there is no neutral ground. There is no buffer zone. There is no, no man's land. But every man, by nature, is a declared enemy of God Almighty. And everything he thinks, everything he does every motivation is against God until he is conquered and brought to an absolute surrender to God. This is why the believer does not have any common grounds with an unbeliever when it comes to the dealing uh, with the things of God. There's no common ground. He stands on God's side And the sinner stands against God, and the only commonality is a common depravity, a common fall in Adam. We don't try to speculate and reason from neutrality, but we proclaim positively the word of God and the necessity of that sinner coming to the terms of God in absolute and unconditional surrender. And this he does and can do only by the undeserved favor of God toward him. That's the grace of God. I read this illustration in one treatment of the doctrines of grace. I think it conveys the thought, and yet I think it falls far short. He says, There is, for example, a college student who is more interested in trouble than in education. Therefore, as he sits In class, he disrupts the lecture. He attacks a paraplegic who is in the class. He goes outside after the class and, in protest, burns down the building. He goes further than this. He cuts the fireman's hose so the fire cannot be put out. In the process of his revolt, he murders a fellow student and throws rocks at the police. He is finally apprehended, brought to trial, convicted, and sentenced to die. But rather than being executed, he is granted a full pardon and a $10,000 per year income at the expense of the court. Now, that is grace. Anybody who looks at that can say, boy, that's unmerited favor. If anybody didn't deserve a pardon, it's that fellow. And if anybody didn't deserve a $10,000 per year bonus, it's that fellow. But this doesn't illustrate the grace of God fully, because this is grace without justice. This is an affront to justice. This would destroy our penal system. Well, it's already destroyed. I don't suppose it would. It would just fit right in with this sociological nonsense that is being propagated in courts by judges today who are trying to be psychologists and psychiatrists rather than the ministers of God uh, to punish the wicked. But nevertheless, here is a grace, but it's without justice. Now, we may say that with reference to man, every one of us has committed far worse crimes crimes than visualized in this student. For our crimes are against God himself, and yet he pardons us, and rather than a material bonus per year, gives us eternal life and makes us after the image of his own Son. But you see, the difference is this. God never does this in violation of his justice. God is so holy, God is so righteous, that he cannot arbitrarily dismiss sin. You mark that down and never forget it. God just cannot write sin off. God's not that much a God of love. God is love, but God is holy, and his holiness and his justice dominate him so that love can never be shown at the expense of his righteousness. Now the wages of sin is death, God's justice says. The soul that sinneth it shall die, God's justice says. Well, how then is God going to show such unmerited favor toward us? How is God going to be gracious? If that be the case, he satisfies his own justice. And he does that by sending his own Son, who is without sin, to stand as our substitute to take the guilt of our sins and to pay our sin debt to be punished in our stead so that we who are ill-deserving may receive his free favor in the pardon of sin. And I'm here to tell you, my dear ones, that this free pardon, this free salvation is never given to the sinner apart from Jesus Christ never arbitrarily arbitrarily bestowed upon man in sin. It's only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, now let us look at the word irresistible. We're talking about irresistible grace. Here are some words that set it forth. The word efficacious grace, effectual grace, invincible grace, certain grace. So irresistible grace means that those who are chosen by the Father and are redeemed by the Son, once the Holy Spirit of God regenerates them and imparts spiritual life and opens their eyes and hearts and changes the direction of their will and emotions, they cannot refuse the gospel. They will certainly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, they cannot resist the Spirit of God in this application of grace to the heart. Now, this does not mean that God makes us do what we do not wish to do. He makes us willing in the day of his power, the psalmist says. Therefore, every person who has ever been saved has been saved as a result of wanting to be saved, of desiring to be saved. And every person who has perished in his sins has perished in those sins because he loved those sins. He wanted to live in those sins, and he did not want the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, in the case of one, God leaves them alone. Let's them go their way except he doesn't allow them to fulfill the full potentiality of their hearts in rebellion against him. And in the case of others, he changes them. He gives them a new nature and a new disposition. So we're not overcome as a child by a kidnapper but we are wooed by the Spirit, we are captured by love, we are illuminated in our understandings so that we see who we are, we see who Christ is, and we willingly and deliberately believe in him. Therefore, it is not God who believes for us, we believe ourselves. It is not God who repents on our behalf, we do the repenting, but it is God who gives us the gift to do so. We do the repenting, but it is God who gives us the gift to do so. Therefore the Holy Spirit of God will certainly without any ands and ifs and buts cause every one whom God has chosen from eternity, and for whom Christ died to believe on Jesus as Savior. Now let us very hurriedly note some erroneous views in this matter of salvation, noting, first of all, Pelagianism. And I use this because the canons of Dort spoke of the heresy of Pelagius. Now, we don't have many people in our day who are so bold as to stand and publicly admit that they are Pelagians. For anyone who has read church history and knows church history, usually, though they may be Pelagian, are ashamed to be identified with the father of their system of thought. However, some time ago I was shocked almost to the point of speechlessness and almost lost my train of thought when I was speaking before the literary club of Samford University, which was an extremely liberal club, And the professor of religion stood up and said, But Dr. Griswold, I am a Pelagian. Now, I knew him personally. He and I had been college mates. I won't call his name. But I knew him personally, and I said, Well, you're about the most honest person, and I called him by name, that I've seen in a long time. There was an English professor there, and he stood up and he addressed himself to this Pelagian, and he said, You know... I am not a Christian. I am not a believer. But I'll tell you this. If I were a Christian, I would believe what this speaker has advocated as the Christian religion and not what you believe because what he's teaching is true Christianity and what Pelagius taught was not. Even he could see that. All right, let's look at this old heresy. And I call it a heresy because three times, The church met in council, examined Pelagius, allowed him to defend himself, and then announced publicly that he and his teachings were heresy and not to be embraced by the church. And yet his teachings have continued in one form or another since his days. And he lived in the fifth century, the 400s. And yet he has continued in his influence even to this day. Now, Pelagius lived in the 5th century, and he was mainly brought down by the genius of Augustine. His primary teaching was that man is not a sinner. He denied total depravity. Now, denying total depravity it was only another step to deny the salvations by grace rather than by human works. Augustine said, man is depraved. Man is a sinner. Man is totally under the wrath of God and cannot do anything that is pleasing to God. Pelagius said, I deny that. And so he started teaching this. Also, because man is somewhat neutral, With a propensity toward good, Pelagius said he does not need the Holy Spirit to save him. All he needs is a little nudge along the way in the upward direction, and he can make it by himself. Therefore, in 418 at the Synod of Carthage, the church announced Pelagius is heretic. In 431 at the Council of Ephesus, the church announced Pelagius is heretic. And in the Synod of Orange in 529, the church announced Pelagius is heretic. Now, Arminianism today is far closer to Pelagius than it is to Arminius. For if Arminius were living today, he certainly would not be caught up in this modern so-called evangelical Arminianism, for he himself believed much stronger in the depravity of man and in the sovereignty of God than the modern-day Arminians. They are closer to Pelagius in that they deny total depravity in election and the sovereignty of God in salvation. Now, in reaction to this, you have semi-Pelagianism, And this is a compromise between Calvinism and Pelagianism, which became old Arminianism, in which it was taught that man had some good in him, though not totally good, that he was a sinner, but at least, though he was totally depraved, his will was still free so that he had an ability to come to Christ when he wanted to by his own decision. Therefore, the semi-Pelagianism taught that every man by nature is given a portion of faith with which he can either choose Christ or reject Christ. But finally, it is up to man himself. So the key to semi-Pelagianism is cooperation, man cooperating with God. Man going along with God, man helping God out rather than surrendering totally to God as an undone rebel sinner and receiving God's favor. So the general thought of semi-Pelagianism was God does his part, man does his part, and the two put together can get the job of salvation done. I want to read you a quotation from an evangelist. Now again, I'm not going to call his name, but... I don't believe it would take over three guesses for you to put your finger right on him, because he's probably the most popular evangelist today. He's the one that at least talks about decisionism more than anybody else from the public platform. He said we must repudiate the view that God regenerates man before he is convicted of sin, repents, converts, and believes. Such a view makes of individuals on no other ground. Or such a view makes God, such a view makes God arbitrarily determine the salvation or reprobation of individuals on no other ground or principles than his own good pleasure or sovereign will. Neither God nor anyone else is able to convert us if we do not convert. And I'm here to tell you that is blasphemy. That's Pelagian heresy. And the church needs to rise up and reaffirm itself in the faith once again today. Can you imagine neither God nor anyone else can, is able to convert us if we are not willing to be converted? Mm. Now, the Calvinist... That is, the person who takes the total Word of God as his total system of truth says the difference lies with God and not with man. The Armenian says it's man who decides. We say it's God who decides. In one case, faith is man's gift to God. And in the other case, it's God's gift to man and results from regeneration. Now, my dear friends, you can't give too much glory to God, and you're always safer in that realm of thought that gives the glory and the honor to God. Now, I want you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And I want to point out a scripture that confirms this whole truth. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Beginning with verse 11, we read, "...He, Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born of God. Not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Now, verse 12 is explained by verse 13. If you follow in the King James Version, you'll see there's a colon there, properly so. And these two little dots means that which is now to follow, there's no period, is an explanation of what has gone before. Now, in verse 12 it says, as many as received him, as many as received Christ, believed on Christ, accepted Christ, if you want to use that word, to them... "...gave God the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name." How do they believe? We're told in the next verse, "...which were born of God." That's how they believed. Just like an unborn infant can't make any decisions. An unborn infant can't communicate. An unborn infant can't do anything. Neither can a man that's not born into the kingdom of God, spiritually to the pleasing of God. Which were born? How were they born? Well, they weren't born of blood. You didn't inherit it from mama and papa, no matter how good they were. Who were born? Not of the will of the flesh. You didn't make a decision. In your own flesh... Nor the will of man, some other man didn't make a decision for you and use some hocus-pocus over you and put you into the kingdom of God. But who were born of God? Born of God. Now, when you're born of God, the gospel comes in power and you believe. So let's, in the minutes that remain, see the scriptural basis for this doctrine. All five points of the system of grace Hang together. Irresistible grace depends upon the Father's election and the Son's atonement. Now let's go backwards and see, first of all, limited atonement. We have already noted that limited atonement means a definite atonement. It means that when Jesus Christ came down into the world... He came into the world already knowing what he was going to do. He already knew who he was going to save. These people had been given to him by his Father before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he said, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. Therefore, when Jesus went to the cross, he didn't spill his blood so that all men might be rendered savable. He shed his blood showing that he had suffered the judgment of God on the behalf of a certain people guaranteeing their salvation. All right then, if Christ actually made an atonement, if he made us free from the guilt of sin, it is necessary for the Holy Spirit of God to apply this atonement to those for whom it was made. If the atonement is effectual, then the work of the Holy Spirit must be irresistible. Christ cannot be frustrated. He cannot be dissatisfied. He cannot fail in what he's done. Now we move back to unconditional election, which means, according to Ephesians 1, 4, that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God knew who he was going to create. He knew that man was going to sin, and he knew out of sinful mankind who it was, he was going to save. He said his love on. He chose them to be the objects of His grace. Now, without this initiative on the part of God, every person without exception would reject Christ, would despise Christ, and so would go to hell. For example, when I was in New England, prior to the time of my conversion, when I was working with that atheistic movement out of New London, Connecticut, I was not seeking Christ. I was seeking to destroy His name and any remembrance of Him. I was attempting to make Him look like a hoax and a farce and the Christian religion, a superstition. But it was God that struck me down and turned me round about and brought me to Christ in unconditional surrender. I was rejecting Christ when God brought Christ to me. Now, there is no meaning and no certainty to election without the effectual work of God, the Holy Spirit. John 6:37. All that the Father giveth me, Christ said, will come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Therefore the Father has given a people to the Son. And the Son says, The Father, having given those people to Him, guarantees that they will come to Him. How do they come? By the irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Then He promises, I'll not cast them out. I'll not cast them out. The word translated draw, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And then in verse 44, No man can come to me except my Father which hath sent me draw him. That word translated draw is the same word translated in John 21 for drawing the net of fish. Now that net didn't make a decision to be drawn out of the water, did it? It was passive in the work. It was something that Peter had to do. It's the same word used when Peter draws his sword from the scabbard and cuts the ear off the servant of the high priest. And it's the same word used in Acts 21 when we read that the mob laid hold upon the apostle Paul and dragged him out of the city. It's an irresistible force. And so it's an irresistible force by the Blessed Spirit. Then look at total depravity. Total depravity, man's sinfulness, man's lost estate, man's helplessness, is the need for the irresistible work of the Spirit of God in saving sinners. All biblical illustrations of the new birth which presuppose depravity illustrate God's irresistible grace as set forth in the canons of Dort. For example, resurrection. Are the dead active or passive in the resurrection? Do men have a power in themselves to raise themselves from the dead, or is it it a power exerted upon them? Yet our conversion is spoken of as a resurrection. And as a resurrection, it is an irresistible power on the part of God that raises up us out of spiritual death. Furthermore, it is a new creation. Did the world throw up its hands and say, Hold on there, God, we don't want to be created. You're violating our free will. Now you've got to give us a choice in this matter. Maybe I, as the land, don't want to emerge out of the seas on the third day. Hold on there. Why, no. The creation had no say. It was the power of God operative, bringing into existence that which pleased him. And in Christ Jesus, we are a new creation, created by the power of God. Furthermore, our conversion is a new birth, a new birth. It's foolish to speak of anyone refusing to be born. Usually, when that time comes around, they're going to be born, and they won't have any say about it. And so it's foolish to say we violated their will and didn't give them a choice in the matter. If they had a choice, they'd want to be born. And when we are born, we choose Jesus. We choose with God. But it is the power of God that brings us into spiritual existence. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, we are described as His workmanship his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And the word translated workmanship there is the Greek word for poem, that we get our English word poem from. We're God's poem. And when a poet sits down to write the poem, uh, the poem has no say about the arrangement of words that might fall upon the paper. It's the creation of a mind outside itself. And so in our salvation we are the creation's of God in his grace. So I conclude, my dear ones, by pointing out that without irresistible grace no one would be saved. God sends adversity into the lives of many, but it does not change them. God sends blessings into the lives of many, but they remain unconverted, and it does not lead to repentance. One may see miracles and yet not be saved. One can hear of judgment and of hell and laugh the preacher to scorn. Unless God intervenes, no one will be saved. Let me bring you back to Augustine or Augustine, however you might speak of him, and look at his life once again. Prior to his conversion, he tried everything. He had tried drunkenness. He had tried living in free sex. He had tried in breaking down the institution of marriage and brought a child into the world through his mistress. He had become a professor of rhetoric in the university. Still, his heart would find no rest. His dear mother, Monica, was a Christian. His father was a pagan. And she constantly prayed for her dear son. One day while he was walking in a garden, he heard a little girl singing a chorus. I don't know how their choruses went in that day, but she was singing a little chorus that was repeating these words over and over, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine heard those words His heart was penetrated by those words and he reached down and picked up a copy of Paul's epistle to the Romans and it fell open to chapter 13 and to these verses and he was converted. Let us in verse 13 walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness not in strife and envying, which he had done as a Manichaean, in his dualism of equal powers of good and bad in the world, which was a form of mysticism, yea, almost occultism, as he had done even under his Neoplatonism that he later had to shed in order to come firmly to the faith. And then he read, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. As a result, even at an early age, he became the bishop of Hippo. And he became the systematic theologian that set forth our great doctrines of the Christian faith. Acts 16, verse 14, the Bible says, While Paul preached, the Lord opened the heart of Lydia and she attended to the things he said. But God had to open the heart. Now, my dear friends, if you understand the gospel, if you have a relish for the gospel, if you know who Jesus Christ is, if you have believed in Christ, if you have been delivered from the love and power and guilt of sin, it is because not of anything in yourself to boast of, but the effectual working of God through the Holy Spirit. And if you have a desire to know Christ as your Savior, to come to Him as Lord, even that desire is not of yourselves, but it has been implanted by the Holy Spirit of God. Oh, may you give Him and Him alone the honor for spiritual life, and may you turn and look to Him alone for salvation if you are yet in your sins. Let us stand for prayer. Our Father, bless the message. Make it effectual. Use it to the glory of Thy name through Christ our Lord. Amen.